And uh, in fact, why don't we now hear from the Lord? Hear now the word of God, Leviticus 23, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the time appointed for them. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month and twilight, is the Lord's Passover. And on the fifteenth day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, but you shall present a food offering to the Lord for seven days. On the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. Father, we, thankful, we are thankful this morning for your word and trust that you would be pleased to reveal yourself to us through it. Even as we heard this morning from the book of Hebrews, that your word is living and active. We believe that because you teach it, but we also believe it because we have experienced it. And our hope this morning as we devote the rest of our time together in your word, that we would experience the power of it, that we might know our God better, that our hearts might be given to Him more fully, and that we might leave this place walking more faithfully in joyful obedience and passionate submission to our Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in His name we pray. Amen. It was on November 11th, 1620, when the Mayflower anchored off the coast of Cape Cod, Massachusetts. On board the ship were 102 passengers, men, women, and children, half of whom were pilgrims who had left England because they refused to conform their theology to the Church of England. This trip was undertaken, according to the Mayflower Compact, quote, for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith. Before setting sail seven weeks earlier, all the passengers nailed upon the dock and asked God for His blessings on their voyage. Once they anchored off Cape Cod, William Bradford, who led this voyage, explained, quote, being thus arrived in a good harbor and brought safe to land, they fell upon their knees and blessed the God of heaven. A trip that began with prayer, a trip that ended with prayer, seeking God's blessing and provision upon them as they began this very arduous and uh, difficult uh, transition in their life. And it it became very difficult. In fact, they anchored on November 11th. Soon, winter approached, a very harsh winter in Massachusetts. So harsh that of the 102 passengers on the Mayflower, 47 died during that winter, including 13 of the 18 women who had made the voyage. Those who survived to 1621 were blessed by the aid of the Native Americans and a rich and abundant harvest. In response, rather than murmur against God for the difficulty and hardship in which they had experienced, they instead feasted with celebration and gratitude. It was a day of thanksgiving to God Almighty. And as more pilgrims arrived in the years to come, they continued this tradition of an annual day of thanksgiving. And thus begins the tradition in which we continue to celebrate even in 2017. Now, if you're a Virginian, uh, you may disagree with that history a little bit. And you may say, no, no, the first Thanksgiving in America was two years earlier in 1619, when 38 settlers settled in Charles County, Virginia, and, and concluded with a celebration as mandated by their charter, which required that these 38, quote, that the day our ships arrive in the land of Virginia shall be yearly and perpetually kept 
holy as a day of thanksgiving to the Almighty God. Right? So our, our, our country is blessed with a history of what we call pilgrims. But we are not the only ones that have pilgrims in our past. In fact, the nation of Israel had pilgrims as well. Three times a year, they would pilgrimage to the tabernacle, which would eventually be set up in the city of Jerusalem to remember God's goodness and to give Him thanks according to the appointed feasts of the Lord. You see this in verse 1 and 2 of Leviticus 23. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. And so they would go and and celebrate these appointed feasts. Deuteronomy 16 tells us, Three times a year all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose. At the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Booths. So three times a year the men all had to travel. Many of them would travel days to get to Jerusalem to celebrate these feasts. You say, well, what, what about the women? What about the children? Well, I don't know. Have you ever gone on a multi-day road trip with children? Right? I would suggest to you that this was God's very practical kindness to them by only requiring the men to come. Of course, at times... Whole families would go, as we've even seen in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. It seems like it was their tradition as a family for the whole family to, to pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We, of course, know this from the Gospel of Luke. They want to celebrate the sacred days in which God had given them. These were days in, in, that God had provided to help the people of Israel to remember God's past provision. And therefore, because He was provided in the past to walk with Him by faith in, in, the, in the midst of today and tomorrow, God is always doing this. Or he says, put some manna in a pot. So you remember, when you were in the wilderness, it was I who fed you. He says, take 12 stones from the, the bed of the Jordan River and erect a monument so that when generations come and they ask, why is there this stack of stones? You may say, the Lord has given us this land. And God says every year, Mark, seven times a year, three times in the spring, one 50 days later, and three times in the fall in remembrance of what I have accomplished for you through my great power. These are God's holy days. And God commands them to do this because He loves them. He commands them. I love this. I, one of my, he lo, God commanded them to feast. Right? God said, have a banquet. God will, we'll see in Leviticus 23, God will say, you shall rejoice. Right? That is the God to whom they worship. He wanted them to find great delight in this, he even gave them songs to sing as they journeyed into Jerusalem. The songs of ascent, for instance, Psalm 122 and verse 1. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And these are the feasts that God had given Israel. The church, of course, has continued a tradition like this. According to what's often called the liturgical calendar or the church calendar. Focusing on two seasons, the Christmas season, which was preceded by Advent and then Christmas and then Epiphany following that. And then the Easter season, beginning with Lent, 40 days prior to Easter and then Holy Week and then Easter. And then there would be Pentecost in between. Right? And, and the church has done this traditionally, and of course we're not mandated to do this, but many people find it helpful in order to be able to look back and remember what God has done for them. And before we even look at these feasts, I wonder, do you ever do that? Never look back and think, God, what have you done for me? Never stop looking for the future. Stop going, going, going. And consider how He has provided for you, how He has protected you, how He has used you. God wants us to remember His work. May God help us to forget not all His benefits. But these feasts, as we'll see in a moment, were not just memorials. They were, of course, aids to remember, but they were guides to look forward. They all, as we'll see later on in our time this morning, pointed to the work 
of a Messiah, of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, I think the whole book of Leviticus does that, doesn't it? I remember when I was a freshman in in college and I was uh, moving in 700 miles away from home at Humboldt State University up near the Oregon border on the coast of Northern California. And I was uh, moving in and my family was with me, my parents at least, and we were walking through a mall. I have since repented, right? And I, I don't frequent those places anymore, but there we were. We are in a mall, and, and there was this kiosk in the mall, and it was all these, these frames, but in the frames were, the, were just like blurs of color, like just a blur of red or a blur of blue or a blur of green, like squiggly lines. It didn't look like anything, and above the kiosk it said, Magic Eye. And I remember talking to the person, and I say, well, what is this? Well, I don't understand. And he says, no, you need, what you need to do is you need to look at this picture. And you need to let your eyes focus or go out of focus. I forget what it was, but one of the things, right, you got to look at it differently. And all of a sudden, you will see this three-dimensional picture. I, I didn't believe it at all. So here I am, and I'm, I'm looking at this thing. And, and you let your eyes focus. And all of a sudden, bam, there's like dinosaurs everywhere, right? Or there's spaceships, or there's just some pastoral scene. This was before we had computers and cell phones, right? This is what we did for fun back then, right? And so we're looking at this magic eye. You could go on the internet if you don't believe me, and you could look at these magic eyes, and it was, it was amazing. It was so cool. I remember my dad being with me, and he couldn't look at it at all. He couldn't, all it was for him was just this blur, but for me it was these, these amazing pictures in three dimensions. That's the book of Leviticus. Right? I mean, we, we, when we read it, right? And we just want to get over it. It's just like a blur and it's law after law and ceremony after ceremony and some ancient ritual that we don't even understand and how to apply to our lives. But then we, we focus, don't we? And we look and we're just like, there's Jesus! Right? In 3D. And then you turn the page and you focus and, and there's Jesus. And you go another page and there's Jesus. And you want to get your friends together. I mean, it's been amazing to me. That Jesus is on every page of this book. In fact, every page of Scripture. And God wanted them to understand this. He wanted them to point forward in the feast to Jesus. In fact, Jesus Himself said in John chapter 5 to the Pharisees, you search the Scripture because you think in them that you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness to Me. For if you believed Moses, you would believe Me for he wrote of me. That's Leviticus. Moses wrote Leviticus. Jesus says he wrote of me. And we've seen this, have we not? We saw that we, when we look at the sacrifice, it all points to Jesus. And we saw the priests and they point to Jesus. And then we saw the, the ritual purity laws and they point to how Jesus cleanses us. And then we saw the day of atonement and we consider that that's all about how Jesus atones for our sin. And then we've been looking at the holiness code and we've considered this is how Jesus' character is expressed. And today we look at the feast and they all will point to our Lord. So what I want to do this morning is simply just two, two points, two, two activities, if you will. First of all, we're just going to learn these seven feasts, and then we're going to see how Jesus fulfills them. That sound okay? All right. If, even if it doesn't, that's all right. We're doing it anyways. Okay? All right. Verse 3. Right. I'm going to have a good time today. If you, you don't want to, that's fine. Um, but here we are. Verse 3. Um, before we even look at the feast, consider this. The Bible says six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. My hope is next week to spend more time fleshing out the Sabbath as we consider the Sabbath year and the the super Sabbath, the year of Jubilee, if you will. Let me just say briefly that the Sabbath was one of the two signs that God gave to his people to um, to show that they were in a covenantal relationship with Him, the other being circumcision. So the Sabbath and circumcision were given to Israel to show that they belonged to God. We see there in verse 3, they would do two things on the Sabbath. One, they would not work. It was a day of rest. Two, they would worship. You see that there? It's a holy convocation. That means they would gather together as God's redeemed people and worship God. So take a day off and focus on God. That was the Sabbath that God gave them. Um, We'll see, by the way, a Sabbath principle throughout uh, this passage. As they rest every seven days, there's seven annual feasts, the greatest coming on the seventh month, 
every seventh year is a sabbatical year. You take seven sabbatical years, seven sets of seven, year 49. The next year is the super Sabbath jubilee, and God really wants to ingrain this in their consciousness of the people of God. And so let's consider these seven feasts, the first being the Feast of Passover, which celebrates God's deliverance from his wrath. Consider verse 4. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the time appointed for them. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. Now, he doesn't go on to explain the Passover. We find, um, if you really want a good explanation of this festival, you look at Exodus 12 and 13. The Passover was a celebration when they recalled when they were enslaved in Egypt. And God sent these ten plagues to redeem his people. But the last plague, the death of the firstborn, unlike the previous nine plagues, was not targeted at Egypt alone, but also fell upon Israel unless they did as God instructed, which was to take a year old lamb without blemish into their home, live with that lamb for four days, on the fourth day to kill the lamb, Eat, it, uh, eat the lamb, it's called the, what they now call a Seder meal, and take the blood of that lamb and apply it to the doorposts of their house. And then God sent his angel of death to express his wrath, striking down the firstborn in every home, unless you would hide under the blood of the lamb. This, of course, brings back the echoes of Abraham. Remember in Genesis 22, how Abraham's firstborn was spared as the lamb would take its place. And so now we see it done to the entire people of God. And Exodus 12 tells them that every year they are to share this meal. On the first, 14th day of the first month, God says, I want you to remember, in fact, I want you to celebrate that my wrath passed over you because of the death of an innocent substitute on your behalf. Amen indeed. The second feast. The Feast of Unleavened Bread will be celebrating God's redemption from slavery. Consider verse 6. On the 15th day of the same month, so that's the very next day, right? The 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no ordinary work, but you shall present a food offering to the Lord for seven days, On the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall do no ordinary work. So this is a week-long festival. Its purpose is very similar to that of Passover. And and, and again, remembering how God redeemed them from Egypt. But this the idea here is that God redeemed them so quickly that there was no time to leaven the bread. They didn't have time for the bread to rise, right? Right? And so every year God says to his people, the day after Passover, you spend a week together and you eat matzah or unleavened bread for seven days so that you might remember when you were enslaved and you thought I had forgotten you for 400 years. And then God in his mercy comes and delivers you so suddenly that you don't even have time for the bread to rise. You might remember the power of my might defeating the most mighty empire in the world without asking you to do a single thing. This would lead into the third feast, which often, according to their calendar, would come right after the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Not always, as far as I understand. This is the Feast of first fruits. Now this feast would be celebrating God's provision of the coming harvest. Look in verse 10. Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And so this this is a festival that would coincide with the beginning of the barley harvest. And so the harvest has just started to come in. And what they would do is they would gather together and they would bring to the Lord the first of their harvest. So they would go out and harvest and they, would, they wouldn't take that for themselves. They would go and give that to God. This is a way for them to acknowledge that God was bringing in this harvest for them. 
Now, you can imagine, this is going to take some faith for them. Even today, how many people who say they belong to Christ refuse to give Him their first fruits? And they say, well, I'll pay my mortgage and I'll pay my credit card bill and I'll, I'll pay the power bill and I'll pay the food bill and whatever and we'll pay, I'll, I'll take care of all my needs and probably most of my wants and if I have anything left over, I will give to the Lord. It's how many people live. And God says, it's not how my people live. My people bring their first fruits before you have any idea if there's more harvest to come. Because listen, you give God your first, you know what could come right after that? Drought, invading locusts, terrible storm, marauding army. You don't know what's coming. You want to you wanna take that to yourself. You want to, to hoard onto that, wait till you got a little security, and then give to God. And God says, no, I'm your security. You trust in me. And, and they acted in faith, and they gave to the Lord, knowing that God would provide for them. As I've been reading the book of Leviticus, I've come across a book on Christians trying to learn principles from the Old Testament law. The author who wrote the book, his father, it, father-in-law was a peach farmer in California. And he, one day he found his father-in-law kneeling in his peach orchard just as the trees began to produce their fruit. He's holding up a peach in each hand. And he's praying. He's praying, Lord, these peaches are yours. These trees are yours. This orchard is yours. My farm is yours. I am yours. Thank you for your love to me in Jesus. Help me to serve you in all I do. He was, he was responding. He wanted to praise God for the first fruit. According to verse 11, in this festival, they would take sheaves of barley and wave it before the Lord as a way to giving him thanks. Look in verse 14. You notice that only after they would give to God could they partake and eat themselves. And you shall eat neither bread. Right? You can't eat. You can eat neither bread nor grain parched or fresh until the same day until you have brought the offering to your God. It is a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. You say, you give to me first and then you begin to rejoice in what I do. It, It seems to me that gratitude and thanksgiving are, are emotions we have that quick, quickly disappear. We move on from gratitude, I think, far too quickly. And God was trying to help His people to be deliberate, to stop and give honor to the King who has provided for them. And they would. And then they would go home. For the next 50 days. And 50 days later, they would come back to the Feast of Weeks. Weeks sometimes called the um, Pentecost. And there they would celebrate God's provision, not of the coming harvest, but of the gathered harvest. Look in verse 15. You shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath. From the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, you shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. So seven weeks after first fruits, or 50 days after the Sabbath, before the first fruits, they would return to, to Pentecost. This is why it's called Pentecost. It takes place 50 days after the, the feast of, uh, of first fruits. And this, this, this will be the culmination, the end of the barley harvest. So the, the first fruits is at the beginning of the barley harvest. Pentecost is at the end. The harvest is now in, and they come to celebrate. And they'll bring to God many sacrifices. You can read those in verse 17 through 19. Um, in fact, there's so many sacrifices, it's clear that a single household cannot provide all these. And so most people understand that they would come together in their communities and their neighborhoods, and they would pull their resources together, and, and together as a community express their praise and celebrate their covenant to God in this feast. And part of this feast of, of weeks was they would eat from the grain in which they've harvested. It would be baked with leaven. Because this is not a celebration of a quick deliverance, but of a celebration of the abundant provision in which God had brought them. And so of the four feasts we've already considered, you might think of Passover and um, the Feast of Unleavened Bread as a way for them to remember their quick redemption from the old land. And then the next two feasts, First Fruits and Pentecost, are a celebration of His provision in the new land of abundance. And God is teaching them 
I think he's teaching us when he provides, we just don't fill up our barns. We just don't fill up our bank accounts. We stop to give him thanks. This is not, by the way, a fall festival where he's celebrating the cycle of nature. This is like Thanksgiving or what Thanksgiving should be. Giving thanks to God because he has once again provided to us pilgrims. And they would do so in a way that reflects the character of God. Look at verse 22. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord. I think that verse is startling to me because it's right in the middle of this these explanation of all these feasts. God says, oh, by the way, remember the poor, just as we considered last week. That, that you are to, when you, when you worship me, when you celebrate me, you realize I share this land with you. Now you share it with others and you let the nations watch. My people take care of the poor. My people are not interested in more and more and more. They're interested in not living to get and get. They're interested in living and work so that they could reflect my generosity and kindness to those who have not, just as I have done for them. And so they would celebrate this feast. They would return home until the fall when the trumpets would blast and call them back, bringing us to the Feast of Trumpets, number five, which would celebrate God's remembrance of his people. Verse 23. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel saying in the seventh month on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with blast of trumpets a holy convocation, you shall not do any ordinary work, and you shall present a food offering to the Lord. Now this would, this will begin the third main group of festivals. This will be in the seventh month, often, according to our calendar, in September, or usually in October. Now I just read everything about that feast. There's not much there. It doesn't explain it. It, it mentions it's a, a memorial, that's, and it mentions there's a blast of trumpets. Some have noted that this, this is uh, month seven, day one, that the Jews, they would have a, a religious calendar, but they also have a civil calendar. And so month seven, day one of the religious calendar is the new year of the civil calendar. And so this is, a, a, in some sense, a New Year's celebration. In, in uh, Hebrew, it's called Rosh Hashanah. Perhaps you've heard of that. That's the Feast of Trumpets. They're celebrating the new year. But we find out in Numbers chapter 10, and our time is already going, so we don't have time to look there. But you look at Numbers 10.10, it says they're blowing the trumpets to remind God of them. Right? And so they're blasting these instruments so God will... Not that God forgot them, but when the Bible says God remembers His people, it always means He's about to act on their behalf. So in the new year, they they would blow the trumpets and say, God, remember us. Right? Act on our behalf, especially in regards to atonement, which would take place 10 days later. Sixth, consider the fast of the Day of Atonement, celebrating God's removal of sin. Now, we spent a whole sermon on the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16. I believe that's the heart of this book. And so we're not going to flesh out. It was an amazing ceremony, the most elaborate ceremony that Israel ever received. But just for uh, just look at verse 27 and 28. He says... Let's see, where am I? And verse 26, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Now on the tenth day of the seventh month is the day of atonement. It shall be for you a time of holy convocation. You shall afflict yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord, and you shall do no ordinary work on that very day, for it is a day of atonement to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. They would, we call this the fast of the day of atonement, so they wouldn't feast on this day. In fact, in this passage on the Day of Atonement, you'll, you'll, if you read it, he will mention that you need to afflict yourself three times. Now, to afflict was to deny yourself. And most, most likely, what, how they would apply this is they would fast on this day. They would deny themselves from eating because what God wants them to do on this day in which they seek His atonement is to mourn over their sin. It's a day to set aside so that the people of Israel can ponder their iniquity for which they need forgiveness and cleansing. 
And I, I, I've, as I've thought about Leviticus 16, I think about this passage right here, I think this would be good for us to practice occasionally. Now, we want to celebrate the Lord is alive. This is the resurrection day. And I'm all about celebrating God's mercy and grace. But my friends, if we do not appreciate the weight of our sin and the evil of our iniquity, our joy in God's abundant mercy will grow shallow and weak. And so God said once a year, think about your sin. Be broken over your rebellion in order that you might more fully and deeply and profoundly appreciate the grace and mercy in which I have provided in order to take that away. He would provide it, as we know, one goat would be killed and its blood would be carried by the high priest into the Holy of Holies, apply that blood on the mercy seat, atoning for their sin. Another goat would then be burdened with all the sin of the nation and sent away into the wilderness. There's a day when sin was carried away there's a day when defilement was cleansed. God will say, if you ignore this day, cut that person off. Is What they're saying is they don't think they need my forgiveness or they don't think I'm holy. They're rejecting me. God says, no, you, you recognize this day as you will know that I'm the one who cleanses you. I'm the one who atones for your sin. It would be a day of, of mourning of sin and celebration of atonement. And then five days later comes the last festival as the fasting of the Day of Atonement is replaced with the feasting of the Feast of Booths. Now, the Feast of Booths celebrates God's care for them in the wilderness. This is sometimes called the Feast of Tabernacles. Look in verse 39. On the 15th day of the seventh month, you have gathered in the produce of the land. You shall celebrate the Feast of the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest, and on the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. And you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook. And you shall, you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statue forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. So there is seven days of feasting, seven days of celebration, while all the people kind of move into Jerusalem and they build these tents or these booths or these tabernacles and they take palm branches and, and, and willow branches and they, they all camp out. It's a big camp out of the people of Israel celebrating God. And the reason they're camping out is they're remembering that while they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, God took care of them. Look, verse 42. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All the native Israel shall dwell in booths. That your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. Listen, for 40 years, God provided for millions of people in a desert. If we took all 300 of us and we went to the desert... Right? We just, let's just go. Right? Get in our cars and go. We may last like three days. Right? He took up millions for 40 years. There is no farm to farm. There is no Costco to visit. And God says, I will provide for you. And they are to remember that. Because one day, He's going to bring them into a land and the homes will already be built. And the vineyards will already be planted and the wells will already be dug. And the danger is that once they receive all that they need and all that they want, they forget the God who gave it to them. And so to help them appreciate the wonderful homes and the wonderful jobs and the wonderful land and everything else, God says, listen, it's time to go camping. right? And let's remember how I took care of you. Now this feast, the last, is the most joyful of all seven feasts. I want you to turn to the book of Numbers, okay? So the book of Numbers is uh, the next book over, and I want you to find Numbers chapter 28. Now Numbers 28 and 29 lay out all the, the offerings that need to take place in these feasts, right? So we learn all the sacrifice for the feasts. 
And, and we're not going to actually, I just want you to look at the headings. Of course, the headings are not scripture. They're just added there by the people who wrote your Bible. But, but look in chapter 28, and about halfway through, you see the, off, the Passover offerings. You see that? And then you see the offerings of the Feast of Weeks. And then the offerings for the Feast of Trumpets. Then the offerings for the Day of Atonement. And then lastly, we get to the offerings for the Feast of Tabernacles. And look how long it goes. In fact, I have to turn the page. And it goes almost 30 verses. So you take all the other offerings for all the other feasts and you put them together. And then you take just the offerings for the Feast of, of uh, Booths or Tabernacles. And it's just as many offerings. In fact, 192 animals were killed during this week. It was this na- nationwide barbecue. The vineyard harvest had been brought in. They're celebrating with wine, feasting on what God had brought as, as God comes and blesses them with great abundance. Now, a tradition would develop on the last day of this feast. This is an eight-day feast. The last day is called the Great Day. This is not found in Leviticus. This would develop later on in the history of Israel once they came into the Promised Land. That the high priest on the last day, he would go and take a pitcher of water and he would leave Jerusalem and go to the Pool of Shalom. And there he would fill up the, fill up the, the pitcher and he would walk back into the city. He would walk through the water gate and all of Israel was with him singing. And so they would march through the streets of Jerusalem and he would come back to the temple courtyard and he would come to the altar and he would take that pitcher of water and he would pour out water onto that, uh, the bronze altar out there in the courtyard. And it was a reminder to them how God had provided for them the, the water from the rock. Right? The water kept them alive. The, this water meant life for them. But it also looked forward to a day that was coming according to the prophet Ezekiel. And the last chapter, 12 chapters of Ezekiel, or somewhere around there, he has this vision of the temple. And it's this incredible temple, unlike anything that we've ever seen on earth. And out of the throne in the temple flows what? He says, the river of life. And it brings blessings to the nations. In fact, the prophet Zechariah said something very familiar. And so I, I want you to turn to Zechariah. So I'm going to help you. If you can find the Gospel of Matthew, which is the first book in the New Testament... Then you go back towards the beginning and you'll see the book of Malachi and then you'll find the book of Zechariah. Okay? Zechariah 14 would be a passage of scripture that the Jews would read on this great day when the high priest poured out the water upon the altar. In fact, you look in verse 16 of Zechariah 14 and it says, Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come up against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and, here it is, keep the Feast of Booths. So there's a connection here between the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles and Zechariah 14. So the high priest is pouring out the water, and why he's pouring out, verse 6 through 9 is read. On that day there shall be no light, cold or frost. There sh- and there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord. Neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem. Half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name will be one. You see what they're celebrating? It's just not God's provision of the past but they're considering what he will one day do when the Lord comes and reigns in the future. And the water of life shall pour out into all the world. See, these feasts didn't just simply help them remember. It it pointed them to the coming Messiah. In fact, Paul knew as much. He said in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 16, let no one pass judgment on you in question to food or drink. Right? That's in regards to dietary restrictions. Or with regard to festival. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And so what Paul says is, we don't have to keep these festivals anymore. Right? That God does not mandate for us to do so. And certainly I don't as a family, and, and I imagine most of you don't, but I wonder if there's something we can learn here, that they're teaching us the importance of rhythm in life. We're constantly going, going, going. We're always on. We're always accessible. We're always going off to the next thing in the next time and i wonder if there'd be wisdom for us to set up memorial times in our life 
to regularly look back and celebrate what God has done. I wonder how many times you just invite people to your homes and you throw a banquet in honor of God. We are going to feast in honor of God and how much He has done for us that you might give Him thanks. I wonder if this would be helpful for us. But he tells us, Paul does in Colossians 2, that these feasts, all of this, were shadows pointing us to the Messiah. Every single one of them teaches us about Jesus. For instance, the Passover teaches us that Jesus' blood delivers us from God's wrath. You know, in the Passover, each family would kill a Passover lamb and apply the blood to the home so that God's wrath would pass over them. The Gospel of John will mention six times that Jesus died during the Passover. John 19, for instance, now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. The Jews cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So they delivered him over to be crucified. The day of preparation for the Passover. Of all the days in which God can ordain for His Son to be killed, He has Him killed the very hour in which the Passover lambs are being slaughtered for this festival. In fact, later on, they want to bring Him down because Sabbath is coming as soon as the sun sets. They say, let's break their bones so they'll die. They come to Jesus and they find He's already dead and there is no need for His bones to be broken, which reminds us back of Exodus 12 when God said back then, without any explanation, when you kill the Passover lamb, do not break its bones. This is all pointed to Christ. In fact, you know what preceded the death of Jesus? The same thing that preceded the, the death of the firstborn, the, the ninth plague. Remember the ninth plague? The same thing you all were oohing and on about this week, right? Total darkness. The ninth plague, total darkness, Passover lamb is killed. The, with Jesus, what happens? Total darkness, and then our Passover lamb is killed. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. My friends, as God saved the Hebrew slaves from His wrath through the blood of a lamb, so God delivers us through the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the Passover lamb. He is the one who saves us from God's wrath. Well, the unleavened bread teaches us that Jesus redeems us from slavery. John 6, verse 4. Now the Passover, uh, the Feast of the Jews, was at hand. Okay, Passover was at hand, John 6, 4. What happens the day after Passover, right? It's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The very next day, we already saw that. Okay, John 6.22, on the next day. That's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We know this because we love Leviticus, right? Jesus declared, this is John 6, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Christ says, I'm the bread of life. Without the yeast of sin. And if you come to me, I will deliver you from your bondage into eternal life with God forever. He shows us the first, the feast of first fruits. And Jesus assures us of the bodily resurrection. Remember during this feast of first fruits, they would bring their first fruits and thank God for the coming harvest. Many have put the calendar together. I'm not smart enough to do this. But many have concluded, scholars have concluded, that Resurrection Sunday was the Feast of first fruits, right? And what happened? The Lord Jesus rose from the dead, declaring there is a harvest of the great resurrection to come. In fact, the Apostle Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Christ's resurrection is the sheaf of the, uh, of the first fruits of a harvest that is coming. The great resurrection is to come because of what Christ has done if you trust in Him. Right? Fourth, we come to Pentecost or the festival of weeks. It teaches us Jesus brings in the harvest. Now, Pentecost is 50 days after first fruits, right? It's a celebration that the harvest has been gathered. Well, after Jesus rose from the dead, right? The first fruits, 50 days later, is what? Acts 2.1. Pentecost, is it not? And what happens? Well, pilgrims come and they gather in Jerusalem and the Holy Spirit falls 
upon the apostles, and Peter goes out and preaches his sermon, and 3,000 people are added to the church. The harvest has come now. He's out there harvesting. In fact, before the Holy Spirit came, what were they doing? As they waited. Remember what they're doing? They're praying. Now, we don't know what they're praying, but perhaps... Remember, the Lord taught them to pray. He said, pray what? Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest that He will send His laborers out into the harvest field. And I wonder if they are praying that prayer and then God answers says, yes, I will send them out. The Holy Spirit falls upon them and He thrusts the apostles out into the harvest field. They begin to preach and the harvest begins to come in. Pentecost is the answer to that prayer. The harvest is brought in. They celebrate the birth of the New Testament church and we will keep bringing in the harvest until the trumpet is finally blown. Because the trumpet announces that Jesus is returning. We saw the Feast of the Trumpets was this celebration of the new year, calling on God to remember His people. I don't know if you... Sometimes you read the news or watch the news. I don't... Maybe this is heretical. Please, God forgive me. But it's like, God, have you forgotten us? You ever think that? God, how much farther can we go in this direction? Right? Right? Well, one day, my friends, the trumpet will blast. And you will, it will be a new beginning. And you will know that He has not forgotten you. Because Christ will return when the trumpet blasts from heaven. 1 Corinthians 15, the book of Revelation. 1 Thessalonians 4. The Lord Himself will descend from heaven with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord Our labors will cease. The troubles will run away from us. Our God will remember us. And He will take us into the promised land forever and ever and ever. And I'll tell you, that trumpet blast will be the most glorious sound that you and I have ever heard. And for all who are in Christ, but for those who are not in Christ, it will be the sound of judgment. As we see 6, the Day of Atonement teaches us that Jesus takes away our sin. Now, we consider this in Leviticus 19. We saw from Hebrews 9, if you want to study it, He's the scapegoat that carries our sin away. He's the sacrificial goat by whose blood we are able to enter into the very presence of God. I tell you this morning that if you will repent of your sin and trust in Jesus, you will be forgiven and cleansed by a holy God. I sat across the table with a young man yesterday, and I asked this young man, I said, You stand before God. He asks you, why should I let you into heaven? What will you say to Him? And this young man, 20 years old, he looked at me and said, I'll tell Him if I don't deserve to be here, then I don't want to be here. And I told that man, none of us deserve to be here. I don't. You don't. And the only way I will enter in heaven and anyone will enter heaven is if your sins are forgiven by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. I told this man, as I tell you now, based upon the authority of God's Word, if you are to have your sins washed, you must bow your knee to King Jesus in faith and surrender your life to Him who died on the cross to pay your debt and triumphantly rose from the dead and now extends His nail-pierced hands holding grace and mercy to all who would receive Him as their Lord, that He would wash you clean and welcome you into heaven forever that our sins might be atoned for. My Christian brothers and sisters, I tell you that because of the work of Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None! None! You will never experience ever the wrath of God because of the work of Jesus, which leads us, lastly, to the Feast of Tabernacles or booths and shows us that Jesus provides for us forever, doesn't He? Remember that priest poured out the water on the altar? That symbol of life and the hope that one day the river of life will bring blessings to the nations flowing from Jerusalem. The Bible tells us in John chapter 7, On the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. The last day, remember? That great day. The day the priest poured the water out. Jesus stood up and cried, 
If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, and then he quotes Zechariah 14, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You see what Jesus is teaching on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. I am the river of life that flows from the presence of God that brings blessings to the nations if you will come to me. And then one day, because of His work, my brothers and sisters in Christ, according to the book of Revelation 22, the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. And His servants will worship Him. They will see His face And they will reign forever and ever. Every feast points to Jesus. The Bible is not a book to teach you to have a moral life. The Bible is not about you. It is not a collection of fables or little character stories that teach you to be a more moral person. The Bible is about Jesus. He is the Passover lamb who who delivers us from God's wrath. He is the bread of life who redeems us from our enslavery. He is the first fruits who ensures the resurrection of us. Because of Him, the harvest has begun among us. He is the trumpets that declare He is coming for us. He is the scapegoat carrying our sin from us. And He is the living water that flows from the presence of God in us and through us. Guilty, vile, helpless, we spotless Lamb of God was He. Full redemption. Can it be? Hallelujah. What a Savior. Our Father, we love You and we love our Lord Jesus Christ who has come to save sinners. We are without hope if not for Your grace and mercy through Christ. You had a plan for the very beginning. Will You help these truths capture our hearts that we would know that God demonstrates His love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That we might leave here not panting after the world or overcome with worry and trouble, but walking with our heads held high and a skip in our step, no matter what trials befall us. Our God is for us. He is for us from eternity past and shall be for us forever and ever. And He walks with us today by His grace. Oh, Father, in Your abundant grace, do not let anyone leave this room pushing you away. Let anyone thinking I'll do it on my own, break them of their sin, that they might bow their knee to Christ and find a merciful and gracious King. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.